0: I'm Embreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, we are dipping into the archives this week. And now we turn to a segment from 2014, when my predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, teamed up with Boston University religion professor Stephen Prothrow to explore the world's religions. Those conversations are on our website, and they offer a preview and quick dip into traditions ranging from Abrahamic Western ones to lesser-known traditions. We're going to turn our attention to one of those. It's about a tradition I suspect many of you have not heard of before, Yoruba. In this installment, Prothero explains to Maureen how this ancient tradition that has origins in Nigeria, spread across Africa and to the West, namely the Caribbean and South America. As we pick up the conversation, Prothro is describing the central human problem or struggle that the Yoruba tradition addresses and why the tradition appears in ways that might surprise
1: you.
2: The Yoruba tradition sees the human problem as one of disconnection. And the fundamental disconnection that we have is that we're disconnected from our destiny. This is a tradition that affirms reincarnation, and it believes that before we're born, we select a destiny, sort of in, in, in concert with a supernatural kind of being called an Orisha. And we choose a destiny, and then when we're born, we somehow forget it. And so the reason why our life is characterized by difficulty and misery and heartbreak is because we don't really know who we are and we don't know what we're supposed to do. In other words, we don't know our purpose in life, right, which is one of the great Mm -hmm. religious questions, right? What am I to do? What's my purpose? And because we're disconnected from our destiny, we then become disconnected from the people that we live with and work with, right? Our family, our coworkers. Our uh, community, and because we're disconnected from those people, we're disconnected from the cosmic order as well. And so, what the tradition then tries to do is to reconnect us, and it starts by reconnecting us with our own destiny. And then, as we learn and follow our own destiny, we we become reconnected with um, other human beings, and we become then reconnected with the with the cosmic order at the same time.
1: Now, before we go any further, I dare say many of our listeners might never have heard of the Yoruba religion or tradition. Can you talk about its origins and where would you find it in the world? Right.
2: Well, its origins are pretty ancient in Western Africa, particularly in Nigeria. And it's been now really overwhelmed in its homeland. Christianity and Islam, although many people who are Christians and are Muslims in Nigeria today also practice various forms of Yoruba uh, religion. But it starts there, and it also is in Benin and Togo, also in Western Africa. And what happens is, with the slave trade, this is the area where most of the slaves came from into the Americas. And so as the slaves come, They bring their traditions with them. And they go to Brazil. They go to the Caribbean. They go to Central America. And they come to North America as well. And they bring this tradition. And what happens with it, kind of most classically, is that it merges with Catholicism. And historians and Yoruba practitioners will debate exactly what's going on. But what happens basically is that the Yoruba Orishas, as they're called. They're not typically called gods, but they're called Orishas. These are the godlike supernatural forces. There's Mm -hmm. debates about whether they're gods or not. Those gods become connected to Catholic saints. And why is that? Well, in part because in many places of the New World, slaves weren't allowed to practice African religions. That was thought to be dangerous. That was thought to be, you know, sources of you know, slave rebellions and things like that. So there's a sort of covertness here of, of you know, oh, we're not worshipping Ogun, you know, the uh, the god of steel and, and of metal. You know, we're worshipping this Catholic saint, right? So there was a connection there where Ogun would be um, St. Peter and Oya, another one would be um, St. Teresa. And so there was a merger of that kind of worship.
1: This is a religious tradition that's very, very ancient. It's probably not possible to name a founder, is it?
2: No, we don't have a founder here either.
1: So this is like almost a traditional religion, although you say in the book that many people have categorized it as primitive or primal or preliterate and that both Islam and Christianity have considered it evil or devil-ridden But you say that is not a good way to think of the Yoruba religion.
2: You know, the way the Yoruba religion usually shows up in textbooks is, um, well, one way it shows up is by not appearing at all. But when it appears, it typically would appear under the category of primitive religions or primal religions. And then it would be mushed together with, say, Native American religions or Australian Aboriginal religions. These would be religions that kind of didn't fit our category of religion because they didn't have scripture. No, they didn't have a Bible or a Koran or a Bhagavad Gita, right? Mm-hmm. And so they seemed to be kind of primitive. They seem to be, like, in the evolutionary model, like, give them another thousand years and, like, they'll figure out to be, like, an advanced religion, right? So there was a sort of a condescension built into that typology, that way of looking at, looking right. at the tradition. Yeah. But from the Yoruba perspective... They make the claim that this is a tradition of memory where we have texts, we have scriptures, but the scriptures are, instead of written down, they're memorized, and they're memorized by these figures called Babalaos who are the owners of the mystery or the owners of the secret. They're the ones who reconnect us With Our Destiny, you go to this owner of the mystery, this Babalao, and and he casts these um, 16 sort of nuts and throws them. And they come out in patterns, one of 256 patterns. And he's memorized all these stories for each one. So it might be number 251. And he'll start to tell you these stories. And these stories then you listen to and you figure out that there's a message inside the narrative, inside the story, that's telling you how to, re- how to find your destiny. And then as a result of that, you do some sacrifice to a particular Orisha as a way to show your gratitude, but also as a way to sort of make a connection between the world of the humans and the world of the Orishas, or the natural and supernatural orders mm-hmm. that's going to bring back this connection that you have in the world.
1: It sounds like this particular Babalao is almost in the role of a priest in in a certain sense.
2: Yeah, they're a priest in the sense that they are a religious um, elite, religious functionary. They're a priest in the sense that they um, have knowledge that others don't have and that they run the ritual. The one thing I love about the encounter of the, of the ordinary person with the Babalao is that when it starts, the babalao takes these um, these palm nuts that are going to be thrown, and he puts it on the head of the person, and he says, you know, you know the mystery. Then he actually says, you know, I don't know anything. You know, I know nothing. And so there's this wonderful s- sense of empowerment of the ordinary person, like, well, we're going to do this ritual, but you're the one who's going to figure it out.
1: And then there is sacrifice to these Orishas. And of course, you say there's some debate about whether they're gods or not. And in the book, you describe several of these Orishas. I wonder if you could, say, describe just two of them, your favorite, just to give us a flavor.
2: One that I really love is, is Ogun. And Ogun is the the god of metalwork. Classically, it's god of iron. As the traditions develop, though, Ogun becomes the Orisha of all these other things like um, truck drivers and airline pilots because they're Uh like in-metal objects, right? Sure. Train conductors and even astronauts. And again, this is like the Catholic saints, you know, like who's in charge of what area of life? Well, Ogun is in charge of that. The other god that I think is fascinating is Eshu. And Eshu is um, the messenger god. Any sacrifice that's made, you give a little bit of the food or a little bit of the sacrifice to Eshu. And you say, hey, bring this to the God that I'm or the, the the Orisha that I'm talking to. Um and Eshu is the messenger, but he's also um mischievous. He has a kind of a trickster to him. And the story that I love about Eshu is is that he has this hat and it's this fabulous hat. I'm I'm sort of thinking now of of Aretha Franklin's hat that she wore <laughs> to the the, um, the Obama, you know, inauguration, right? This fabulous hat that everybody would notice. And on one side of the hat, it's red. And then on the other side, it's black. These are the two colors associated with Eshoo. And so he goes down the middle of the street. And on one side of the street, everybody's like, wow, what a fabulous red hat. And on the other side, everyone's like, what a fabulous black hat. And all of a sudden, the two sides are fighting. So like, that hat's not, that hat's not red. You know, give me a break. It's black. That hat's not black. Give me a break. You know, it's red. And all of a sudden, they're, they're fighting. And Issue just kind of keeps strutting down, walking and sort of laughing that he's been able to make this mischief and sort of disturb the peace. I think that makes the broader point that the Orishas in this tradition are not sort of goody two shoes. They're not always good. They're not like we think of as the Christian or Jewish God who is mm-hmm. a lawgiver and a judge who's moral and always, and always good. They're more like humans in exhibiting the full range of human life.
1: Mm. And then in order to connect the person with the Orisha, you were talking about, um, uh, the the person who can cast, I believe you say, pine nuts, actually, and that's kind of a form of divination or trying to figure out what you need to do in life. But you also talk about spirit and body possession as another kind of ritual or technique that people use to reconnect. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, that's right. So um, the, the thing that's fascinating about this is uh, it's we would typically call this in the study of religion spirit possession, you know, where a spirit of a god comes into a human body and they start to exhibit that. And you see that in, say, certain forms of Pentecostalism, where the Holy Spirit comes in, and you start to speak in tongues, right? That's, right. Mm-hmm. That's known as a kind of spirit possession. The thing that's fascinating about this form of spirit possession, and I call it spirit and body possession, mm-hmm. because you don't just exhibit the spirit of the Orisha in this ritual, but you actually, you actually walk like the Orisha and you actually dance like the Orisha. Hmm. So, so there are scholars who refer to this religion as um, a danced religion because y- you can take on, you know, the spirit of a particular Orisha. Um, so like, for example, like Shango, who is the Orisha of, um, of s- sort of thunder and lightning, you know, is going to be like herky-jerky kind of movements, right? And then Orishas who are more... Uh, seductive, you know, who are more, um, you know, feminine, are going to sort of have a kind of movement that's more, uh, that's slower, and that's sort of more cool and and, and erotic. So, so these orishas are instantly recognizable to people, once they inhabit a body, by the way that they move, and by the way that they dance, and by the rhythms of the way that they, um, the way that they move.
1: That's, that's fascinating.
2: Very and, far away from the Episcopalianism of my youth.
1: I <laughs> <say>. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And that's quite a ways from most of the religions that I think are more widely practiced in the West. You also say, of course, creed is not important in the Yoruba religion. It's practice.
2: Yeah, and one thing I try to do in this book is to talk about how different religions emphasize different things, right? Mm-hmm. And so yes, in this tradition, it's more about ritual and story. The creedal questions are not really that important.
1: Is there an afterlife in the Yoruba tradition?
2: There is. There's the idea of um the idea of reincarnation. But it's really not about it's really not about speculation about the afterlife. I mean, it's a little more like many contemporary Jews in America who just aren't that interested in the afterlife. It's really more about what I call in the book human flourishing. There's this fascinating conversation in the study of religion where we used to think that religions were basically about dealing with the problem of death because that was the big question. Mm -hmm. And I think the Yoruba religion is a religion that's really less about dealing with the problem of death than it is about answering how can we flourish in the world. And the answer is we flourish in the world by knowing our destiny and we connect to our destiny through the various rituals of the Yoruba tradition. And once we connect to our destiny, we can flourish in our individual life and contribute to the flourishing of our communities and even to the cosmos.
1: You say there are about 100 million people involved in the Yoruba tradition. How would you characterize its influence in the world, given that perhaps many of our listeners have never heard of this one?
2: Well, I think its influence is largely among African and um, African-American, Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Cubans. So it isn't a tradition that has a lot of influence in, you know, white America, for example, or in um, among white Europeans. And, And I think it's a tradition that is also very much about um, hanging on to a tradition, and I think that that's part of how it survived under the amazing stresses of the slave trade. Was that it? It made a connection for black people in Brazil, in Cuba, in New York City, back to Africa, and that it also, I think, is influential and important for showing ways in which religions can mix and merge. You know, is a lot of Yoruba practitioners in the New World are Catholics, but Are they really Catholics? You know, are they, is the Catholicism a kind of cover for the Yoruba religion? Is the Yoruba religion a cover for the Catholicism? You know, it raises some interesting questions about how religions can meet and merge.
1: Mm -hmm. It certainly does. Thank you, Stephen.
2: Thank you. It was fun.
0: Fiedler is the founder and my predecessor here at Interfaith Voices. She recorded this conversation with Stephen Prothrow back in 2014. Stephen Prothrow is the C. Allen and Elizabeth Russell Professor of Religion in America and the Department of Religion at Boston University. He is a frequent commentator on NPR, CNN, MSNBC, and PBS, and a regular contributor to The Wall Street Journal. His latest book is Religion Matters, an introduction to the world's religions. Coming up next, we hear the story of a man so enamored with his newly adopted faith, he decides to create a film about it. This is Interfaith Voices. Keep listening.